Good morning to you. Uh, we're going to return to our study in 2 Corinthians uh, with our time this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to meet me there. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read verses, uh, starting at verse 1, we'll read through verse 15. Um, as you're turning, there are two brief announcements for you uh, before we begin. Um, just a reminder that next week uh, we will have a time of congregational prayer after the first service in the gym at 1030. It's going to be led by one of our elders, Mike McCullough. And the time of congregational prayer, the corporate prayer, is really uh, specifically for the envisioning process that we're walking through right now that God would lead us and guide us. And so uh, please mark your calendars for that. And then also, secondly, mark your calendars for October 31st, uh, coming up here at the end of the month. On um, Sunday, on the Sunday morning of the 31st, we're actually going to host our annual congregational meeting that morning. Um, at the meeting, we'll give you some of the results of the studies that we've been conducting through this envisioning process. We'll give you an operational update, and, and then those of you who are members of FAC will actually vote in a new round uh, of elders, um, and so we'd encourage you to be there. Uh, we're switching things up this year in regards to the annual meeting. Typically, our pattern has been to have that in the uh, evening, in the middle of the week, uh, but in hopes to engage more of you guys as the congregation, uh, we're actually going to put it on Sunday morning. Uh, and so October 31st is going to look a little bit differently than it normally is, uh, our normal pattern. We're going to have one service that morning at 9.30, uh, so if this is your normal time, you don't really have to worry about anything. Uh, we're going to have our normal worship. We're not going to cancel church by any means for an annual meeting. Uh, we will have a service, but there will only be one at 930. Uh, and then at 11 a.m., we will hold the annual meeting in place of our, our second service. Uh, everyone is invited to join the meeting, even if you're not a member of FAC. Uh, but if you are a member here, it is critical for you to attend because there is business to be conducted. In order for business to be conducted, we do need a certain portion of our membership to be in attendance. And so please make it a priority to attend, especially if you are a member. Um, we're also going to invite everybody to join us afterward for a time of fellowship. Uh, we're going to offer a, a, fr a free pizza and salad lunch. Um, after the annual meeting. And, and this is really my shameless way to bribe you uh, to come to the meeting. Uh, and so if you intend on coming to lunch that afternoon, I'd ask that you just please RSVP online in the weeks to, to, to come so that we know uh, how much to prepare for. Once again, everyone is invited uh, for the whole morning. We would love to see you at 9.30 for service. Stick around for the meeting, uh, regardless if you're a member. Uh, and then stick around for lunch afterwards. Um, I trust that the entire morning and, and even afternoon will be filled with fellowship, uh, and I hope that you can make it. Once again, that's October 31st. Uh, for this morning, though, let's go ahead and turn our attention now to God's Word. Uh, we'll be in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. I'll start from verse 1. Please follow along as I read. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, 
in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Would you pray with me? And Father, we just pause for a moment to come to you. We praise you for the great generosity of your son Jesus. And that though he was rich for our sake, he became poor. So that by his poverty, we might become rich. Let this good news of Jesus frame for us how we look at the world. And how we look at our worldly treasures. Would you instill in us a spirit of generosity? Primarily because we are the recipients of such great grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we begin our time in the text, I actually uh, feel the need to share sort of a disclaimer of sorts. Um, I am not ignorant to the fact that some of you uh, may be visiting with us today or or may even be relatively new to FAC. And and perhaps as you sit here today, uh, the first time here or new to FAC, you think about your past and you think about all the poor experiences that you've had with churches uh, when it comes to the subject of stewardship and generosity and giving. I have personally heard people say that all churches care about is your wallet. All they want from you is your money. That they're always asking for your money. If that is your understanding of churches here this morning, I want to put you at ease. I trust that our regular attenders can vouch for me when I say that that is not the case here uh, at FAC. Um, you're going to have to take my word for it, at least for now. Uh, then you might say, well, if that's not the case, then why even broach the subject at all? Why even talk about it? Well, the simplest answer that I can give you is that we here at FAC are committed to what's called expository preaching. Uh, expository preaching, it, simply put, it exposes God's Word. It, it starts with God's Word, opens it up to a passage, and essentially asks the question, what would God have to say to us today? What does God want us to know from his word? The foundation of any expository sermon is the text. The main point starts with the sermon, with scripture. 
as opposed to another type of preaching that you may hear often called topical preaching that actually starts with a topic or an idea that the pastor wants to deliver and then sort of tacks on scripture to support the topic. Um, our main diet here, if you will, at FAC is expository preaching. And in our commitment to expository preaching, we often preach not just from God's word, but through God's word. So for instance, right now, if you've been with us for many months, we are preaching through Second Corinthians. And this is one of the many beauties of expository preaching through books is that eventually we will touch on subjects of all sorts, tough subjects, touchy subjects as we come to them in Scripture. And so in our context here, while we don't necessarily pursue tough subjects often, um, we also don't avoid them as we come to God's Word. And that goes for any difficult subject. And so when you ask the question, why even broach the subject about giving, about generosity uh, today? My answer for you is, well, because we're studying through the book of Second Corinthians. And by God's sovereignty, this is where he has us today. And this is where he will have us next time we come to Second Corinthians as well. I can say in confidence this morning that we're not talking about the topic of giving today we're talking about and looking at what 2 Corinthians 8 says, which just happens to be about giving. Now, before we look to 2 Corinthians 8 ahead, uh, I, I want to take a moment to look actually back. Uh, the last few chapters, Paul has addressed certain bonds that we as people have, that the Corinthians had. In chapter 6, he spoke about how the Corinthians had uh, were bound to certain people, unbelievers, and, and Paul made the plea to them, you need to unbind from them. Uh, you're bound to them, you need to unbind from them. They have too much of a hold on you, right? And then in chapter 7, which we looked at last week, Paul addressed the issue of his own relationship with the Corinthians. And what we found there was, was that there was a bind between the two of them, Paul and the Corinthians, that actually had been severed at some point. But now through the passage, we discovered that it was restored. The bond was restored and it was great. There was reconciliation. And now here in chapter 8, having that bond between Paul and the Corinthians restored, their relationship now reconciled, Paul goes on to address another kind of bond. And that is the Corinthians' bond to their possessions. And he will go on to test the strength of that bond. This morning we're going to look at the passage a little bit out of order. And so bear with me. I'll try and help you keep up. Let me draw your attention first to verse 10 because that really sets the context. Verses 10 through 15 uh, sets our context this morning of what Paul is actually talking about here specifically. In that verse, Paul revisits a, gift, a giving initiative that had been started in the church of Corinth the year prior. Now, now we know this specific giving opportunity uh, as the Jerusalem collection based on other areas of scripture. Uh, once again, this was a, a giving initiative that had started the year prior. And it seems as though the pause button had been hit uh, on this when the fallout occurred between Paul and the Corinthians. And so now that the relationship with them is restored, Paul urges them to finish 
what they started to, to do, what they had pledged to do the year before. A little bit about the Jerusalem collection. It was a specific offering collected by non-Jewish churches, Gentile churches is what we would call them, to bless the Jewish Christians in the Jerusalem area and in the region of Judea who had fallen on hard economic times due to a famine that had occurred there in the 40s. Paul actually writes about it, like I mentioned, in several other areas of Scripture, and he had spent close to a decade promoting this specific relief effort. And here he gives the Corinthians some guidance on the collection. And we might actually be surprised to find what Paul instructs them in verse 11 and 12, that it is acceptable to give according to what they have, not according to what they don't have. He tells them it is completely fine to give out of your surplus because he's not trying to burden the Corinthians in order to ease others. And then it's here in verses 13 and 14 that we actually see the purpose of the collection. We see the end goal in mind is that no believer would be in need. That is the desire of the collection, that no believer would be in need, that there is actually an interdependency among the family of God, that there would be what Paul calls fairness, or some translations even say equality. Paul is not saying here that having a surplus is wrong for the believer. But he is pointing out the fact that it's not right for a believer to live luxuriously while there are other believers who are going without food or shelter or clothing, their basic needs. And so he's saying we need to remedy that. We need to be a community that is interdependent where there are uh, no needs unmet. Something's wrong with this picture, he says. C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, he's one of the most famous preachers in the 1800s. He was once invited to preach at at a church uh, with the purpose of helping them raise funds to pay off a restricting debt. Uh, and the man who invited him to preach, he was a wealthy man. And in the invitation, he expressed to Spurgeon that as a benefit to the speaking engagement as part of it, that he would be free to use his country house or his townhouse or his seaside home for, for the trip. And Spurgeon wrote back to the man declining the invitation. And he said, Sell one of your homes and pay the debt yourself. We should desire to live in a Christian community where even though not everybody is in the same place economically, at least everyone's needs are met, no matter how great or small such needs are. And Paul actually drives home this very point by using an example out of the book of Exodus. He quotes Exodus 16, 18 in verse 15. In Exodus 16, if you were to go to that story, it's when the Israelites um, are out in the wilderness after their departure from slavery in Egypt and they're hungry and, and they're just kind of complaining to God, right? And uh, that, that they're hungry. And they said, we would have rather been back in Egypt where we were well fed in slavery. And, and so God actually promises them manna from heaven. 
The manna is like a bread-like uh, substance, and uh, it was a food that God provided them every day. And through Moses, he gave the instruction to, to go out every day, have everybody go out every day, and collect as much as your family needs. And there were some families that probably had like 15 kids, and they gathered a lot. And then there were others that only had a few kids or no kids, and they, and they gathered very little. But at the end of the day, we find out that there was absolutely no shortage of food. Even though some had gathered more and some less, even though there were certain families that had more and some that had less, all of the needs were met. Nobody was in want. The whole story of Exodus 16 shows that God supplies our daily needs. That is the point of it. And in the wilderness... He did it by miraculous means. But today, God in a new covenant community supplies many of our needs through the interdependency of a biblical Christian community. And so that is the primary topic at hand for Paul here is is the Jerusalem collection. That is actually why he writes this section to ensure the completion of the collection in the church of Corinth. However, as with all things, Paul wants them and Paul wants us as readers to look at the situation theologically. Right? We should not be generous just for the sake of being generous. Instead, we need to understand the spiritual foundation and groundwork of generosity. How we handle our generosity, how we handle our possessions, our stewardship, how we navigate our stewardship actually says something about where we are spiritually. It says something about our understanding of God. And that is Paul's primary concern here. You see, he doesn't care as much about the amount given. What he cares about is the spiritual condition of the giver. And we know this to be the case because as you search the passage talking about this Jerusalem collection, as you search the passage, you will never find one reference to money in any of it. He never brings up the topic of money. Paul's primary concern is not the budget, but the heart of the believer. And so we see that this is not just a thinly veiled plea for money. Which is why before Paul even gets to the topic of the Jerusalem collection, he lays down the groundwork for generosity. He talks about the heart of the person who is truly generous. And he does this by bearing testimony of the churches in Macedonia, which was actually a region north of Corinth. It was a neighboring area. Paul is saying, these guys are like the gold standard of generosity. And I want to tell you about them and what a truly generous spirit looks like. And Paul explains right on the front end that they are the gold standard of generosity, not because of who they are, not because they are inherently generous people, but because something has been done in them. A spiritual transformation has occurred in their hearts because they themselves were the recipients of generosity. They were the beneficiaries of a benevolent God. And it has changed their view of their resources. In verse 1, take a look at it. 
This is one of the most important verses in the whole passage. Verse 1, Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. I've said it time and time again. Paul is very careful with his words here. Yes, he's talking about the churches of Macedonia, giving them as an example. But notice that Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to know about the Macedonians. He wants them to know about the grace of God that has been given to the Macedonians. And so this is not a testimony about the Macedonians as if we put them up on a pedestal. No, this is a testimony about the grace of God. The grace of God is the focus of Paul's writing here. Paul's not primarily speaking to generosity in this passage. He's speaking to the transformational power of God's grace on the life of a believer. The word grace, it's a term that refers to God's undeserved gifts to us, his favor, his kindness to us. It's a demonstration of his favor towards us. And all of the grace of God, which takes many, many forms that we experience, it flows from his primary expression of grace, which was his reconciling us as sinners to himself in Jesus. And so Paul writes here that the Macedonians have experienced God's divine favor, his grace. And his grace, such grace, has now manifested itself in the Macedonians in the form of their extraordinary generosity. Having experienced the glory of God's grace and salvation, the Macedonians now have a different view of their possessions. It's in our fallen sinful nature to possess. Is it not? Right? To to have and to hoard. Our identity, especially as Americans, is often wrapped up in our stuff, in our material possessions, in our status. And oftentimes, instead of possessing our stuff, our stuff possesses us. It has this uncanny tether on us. In our natural state, we are in bondage to our money. And as a result, oftentimes, our money calls the shots. Our pocketbook determines what we do. But when God opens our eyes to salvation, when we are the recipients of His great grace, of His favor, He changes how we view our wealth. When we are reconciled to God, He binds us to Christ. And as a result, all other worldly bonds are loosened quite naturally. All of a sudden, being in Christ, my money no longer clings to me as it once did. We experience what the hymn writer declares when we sing, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of His glory and grace. 
And so now, while I am free to enjoy the great many material blessings that God has has given us, we are free to enjoy those as his gifts. None of it possesses me because I have found my full satisfaction in Christ. And having full satisfaction in Christ, having the greatest treasure of God's Spirit in my possession, I am now more apt to give away my material possessions because I don't need them anymore as I once did. The more I know and understand and experience the grace of God, the more generous I will become in all things. Not just with money, but generous with my resources, generous with my time, generous with my energy. The genesis of genuine generosity is grace. The genesis, the beginning of genuine generosity is grace. We must keep this in view. For Paul, the motivation of giving others is not in order for us to show God how much we can do for him, but rather it's a way of illustrating how much God has done for us. The beginning of generosity doesn't actually start with a need. It doesn't start with a pull. It starts with the grace of God. And this is the very reason we don't talk much about money around here, because the financial state of any church is not dependent on giving initiatives or giving strategies. It is dependent on the grace of God taking root in the heart of the church family. Right? We're going to live within our means. God has blessed FAC very, very well, and we will live within it. But it is dependent purely on the grace of God. One author wrote that we don't need bigger fundraising campaigns. We need a bigger picture of God. The Macedonians, they had a big picture of God. Their generosity was birthed by the grace of God. If we don't get this point, then let's just pack it up and go home because the rest of the passage doesn't matter. Right, right. Because the rest of the passage, the rest of the conversation isn't worth having because the subsequent Macedonian example is contingent on that principle that generosity begins with the grace of God. From the grace of God, the Macedonians' generosity took on certain characteristics. I see four of them. First, they gave in verse 2, sacrificially. It says that they were in extreme poverty or rock bottom. Dirt poor poverty as one is written. Uh, in verse 3 says that for they, they gave according to their means as I can testify and beyond their means. We get the sense that they kind of looked at the numbers, they determined what was comfortable and then they gave more. Uh, they gave beyond that figure, which is fairly remarkable in light of what Paul later writes in verse 12, that it's actually acceptable to give according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. From this, we see here that the Macedonians, in giving out of their poverty, are, a, are an exception rather than the rule, which shows us the impact of God's grace that it had on them. They gave sacrificially and they were joyful about it. And their joy was not founded on the fact that God had prospered them because he had it. They were poor, but in extreme poverty, they had joy. And so their joy was a joy in God. In the experience of his grace, they found their satisfaction completely in God, not in their security. 
This was a tangible act of trust in God, a recognition that God supplies all our needs, that I will rely more on God than I will the balance in my checking account. They gave sacrificially. That's number one. Number two, second, they gave willingly. At the end of verse three, they gave beyond their means, uh, but also of their own accord, or in other words, entirely on their own. They were not manipulated. They were not coerced. Well, we can say with confidence, actually, that they weren't even asked to give, because remember, the whole purpose of the Jerusalem collection was fairness, so that the needs would be met. And so it would defeat the whole purpose of the whole offering to ask the Macedonians for money if they themselves were struggling to make ends meet. But they still gave willingly. One who has experienced the great grace of God gives willingly. Now, unfortunately today, there are many organizations that use arm-twisting tactics to get people to, to give, right? Many people that embrace sensationalism where they kind of tug at the heartstrings. You know what I'm talking about. You've all seen the, the commercial uh, f- f- fighting against animal cruelty, right? Where it's got, it's got the puppies and the cats, uh, the pictures of them, and it's got Sarah McLaughlin's uh, in the arms of the angel playing in the background. And, and you watch that and it brings tears to your eyes and you just feel like the most rotten person in the world if you don't give. And you get to the end and you get the sense that they're telling you, you must really hate animals if you don't give. So how much can I put you down for? So they, 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 they go after sensationalism. Some organizations use the tactic of impending doom. If we don't raise this amount, we're going to have to shut our doors. Or this service that we provide to you, this thing that we have to offer you will be no more unless you give four easy payments of 1999. But you see, the church is different because God doesn't need our money. It's all his anyway. We're just borrowing it for a short time. And that makes the willing gift all the more testament of God's grace that has taken root in one's heart. They gave willingly. Third, they gave eagerly. Verse 4 tells us that Paul didn't do the begging. They did the begging. They begged Paul to participate in the collection. Paul's saying, you guys don't have the means. You don't have to give. Look how much you you need the money. What are you thinking? You don't have the means to contribute. You need it for yourself. No, Paul, please. We beg you. Let us be part of this. We are eager to participate in this. And in verse 4, it says that they begged earnestly for the favor of of participating. That word favor, it's interesting that the ESV translates it differently, but that word favor there in verse 4 is the same word in verse 1 for grace. They're saying, Paul, this is a further experience of God's grace, not just for the Jerusalem people, but for us. This is a blessing for us. We want to experience more of God's grace. And by letting us give, we, we are experiencing more grace. Please don't rob us of the joy in that we, ha- we have in giving. Do not deny us this honor. It reminds me of when I go and pick up my food curbside at Chick-fil-A. And somebody comes out and they give me my food, that, that sweet manna from heaven. 
And I say, thank you, thank you so much. And what do they say 99% of the time at Chick-fil-A? My pleasure. It's my pleasure. No, honestly, I have served you. But it brings me joy. It brings me pleasure to have served you. The Macedonians counted it a privilege to participate in God's grace to the point where they wouldn't take no as an answer from Paul. This isn't just something they thought they should do. It's not something that they thought they had to do or even wanted to do, but they longed to do it. They gave eagerly. And finally, they gave fully or entirely. We say that we can see one's passion for a cause when they give themselves entirely over to that cause. And in verse 5, Paul explains, that their extraordinary generosity was not expected, but it was a result of the fact that they gave, not their money, but that they gave themselves first to the Lord. They gave themselves fully. Not not in that they, they gave all of their money, but they did give all of themselves over to the Lord. One author writes that the greatest expression of God's grace in a person's life is not its demonstration towards others, but it's in response to God and his cause. The most important thing for Paul is not that the Macedonians gave their money to others, but that they gave their lives to God first. Once again, God doesn't want your money. He doesn't need your money. He wants you. He wants your heart. And he wants all of you. God is more concerned with the condition of one's heart like Paul than their outward sacrifice. And when we know that our lives, when we know that our lives are not our own, that we've been bought with a price, then neither will we think that our possessions are our own. One of the proofs, one of the many proofs that Jesus had all of them, that they had given themselves over to the Lord is that they also gave in this contribution. One pastor has said that Jesus can have our money and not have our hearts. It's very easy to live a life separated from him, live a life that I wish to have apart from Christ, and then throw a few bucks in an offering plate from time to time to ease my conscience. Jesus can have our money and not have our hearts, but he cannot have our hearts, as the pastor said, without our money. One of the many indicators that he has all of us is how we use our money. William Booth, he was the one that founded the Salvation Army. He was once asked the question, how do you explain for the unusual usefulness that God has made of you? And Booth humbly responded, I will tell you the secret. God has had all that there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I with even greater opportunities. But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with me and them, on that day, I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth there was. God had all the Macedonians they gave fully. Sacrificially, willingly, eagerly, and fully. 
all characteristics of generosity which mark the one who has experienced the grace of God. And Paul turns his attention back to the Corinthians and says, I wouldn't be surprised if you yourselves also displayed such generosity because verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's telling them that same grace that was given to the Macedonians, you as Corinthians, you have that too. You understand that. You have experienced it. You know that Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And it's the strongest of image, image of generosity that we have in all history. When reading verse 9, I couldn't help but think of Philippians 2. That Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what Paul means when he writes verse 9. He's not speaking to Jesus' economic status, but, it, but to Jesus is leaving the heavenly realms, emptying himself out of all that glory, stepping down to earth at his incarnation as a human man in the flesh he became poor. William Barclay says that Christ's sacrifice did not begin on the cross, nor even at his birth. It began in heaven when he laid aside his glory and consented to come to earth. You see, his death was merely the crown jewel of his poverty, which started long before. Yet he did this so that we who were poor, dead to our sin, might become rich and inherit the kingdom of God. He went from riches to rags so that we may go from rags to riches. And he did it sacrificially. He did it willingly. He did it eagerly. And he did it fully. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the greatest gift that we have in Christ and the greatest display of generosity, Father. And so would we be generous people? Lord, we know later on, Paul writes, um, that, that, that we are to give according to what is right in our hearts to give. That is a matter between um, you and me personally, Lord. And so you know our hearts, Father. You know what we are capable of. And I pray Lord, um, that we would honor you with our possessions, that we would honor you with our stuff, that we would be good stewards, Lord. I find that as, as you have entrusted something to us, we, we should desire to take really good care of it until you come to take it back. And so we would do that. Would we honor you and would the grace, your grace be known throughout all the nations because of who we are and our character and stewardship. And in your holy name I pray, amen.